Isaiah 53, by which, of course, I mean Isaiah 52 headed into Isaiah 53. Lloyd is the Bible man tonight, if you didn't bring your own. We're going back over the same ground that we covered last week. And last week we observed that the chapter break between chapter 2 and chapter 53 is horrible. Chapter breaks were invented in the 15th century. They're man-made, and they're, they're hit or miss. This one misses. Because the thought, the theme that's developed in chapter 53 really begins in verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold my servant, Jesus. We spent last week looking at what this section of 52 and chapter 53 don't mean. We looked at it from a Jewish perspective, specifically a modern Jewish perspective. And the modern Jewish perspective on this text is that the servant in view is Israel. And last week we explored several reasons why that view, that perspective, doesn't hold up. It's, it's not, well, that's another way to look at it. It's, it's not even a both and, as much as I love a both and. It's not. It's just wrong. The analogy that comes to mind in thinking about it is evolution. Evolution is the product of science, the theory of evolution is. And the rules that make science science preclude supernatural explanations of any kind for anything. Any scientific explanation for anything must be observable and rational and natural, and God is not. God is not rational by our definitions. He's not observable in in the classic sense, and he's not natural, he's supernatural. He is outside of space and time. So science is not allowed, by the rules that make science science, science is not allowed to factor God into their explanation of how anything works, which is how we get evolution. Remove God or anything God-like, anything supernatural from the equation, evolution is the best explanation scientists can come up with, with what's left. It's inadequate thoroughly inadequate, and an increasing number of scientists are acknowledging that. But if they're not allowed to say God, and they're not, it's the best they got. So too for the modern Jewish rabbi who is not allowed to say Jesus, Israel is the best they've got. And it's inadequate in all the ways that that evolution is an adequate explanation, but it's the best they can do with the spare parts that remain. Technically, they could say Messiah and just not Jesus, a Messiah who's not Jesus. And actually, that's what the rabbis did for roughly a thousand years after Jesus. But just saying it's a Messiah not named Jesus begs the question. It invites the conversation, well, why not Jesus? How do you know it's not Jesus? Why do you think it's not Jesus? And that's already talking about Jesus way more than the rabbis want to. Someone asked me Sunday, when Israel was blinded to Jesus? 
Because we've been talking about that. We've been talking about Paul's reference in uh, Romans 11, verse 25, to Israel being blinded in large part. Talking about it Sunday, we've been talking about it on Wednesday. So somebody asked, when did that happen? At what point in time did that become true? And their thought was, did that happen at Pentecost? Which, you know, is, is, is birth date of the church. And we talk about, you know, as dispensationalists, God, God finishes dealing with Israel for a season and turns his attention to the church. Pentecost is, is, a, is, a, is a good thought. The crucifixion would be another good thought. Some people, some people would say, well, it happened in 70 AD. That was contemporaneous with the other judgments, uh, the, 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 wreck of the, the conquest of uh, Jerusalem by Rome and the destruction of the temple and so forth. That one we know isn't possible. We know that that's not when it happened, simply because Paul was already talking about it when he wrote to the Romans in the, in the, in the mid-50s. 15 years or so before the destruction of Rome, he said Israel's already blinded, so we know that that's not the when. If, 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 if you ask me, I think that it happened at the end of Matthew 23. I think that it happened after the triumphal entry, but before the crucifixion, when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and says, you'll see me no more. I think that because... Matthew 23, verse 38. I think it's for another reason that we're going to get to tonight. But Isaiah 53. We read through this like three times last week, mostly pondering what it doesn't say. Let's go through once more this week and consider what it does say and, and, and really just marinate. That's not the word I want, but, but just soak ourselves in, in, in the beauty and also the horror of what it does say. Isaiah 52, verse 13, Behold my servant. I, I haven't been calling it out especially, but there are four servant songs in Isaiah. Four songs, called songs because they're written as poetry, as Hebrew poetry. Servant songs because that is the subject. This one is the fourth, the last one. The others are in chapter 42, 49, and 50. And I put that in the, in the written outline if you want to reference that. We actually visited those chapters last week because we circled back. We wanted to consolidate what we know about this servant, this deliverer, this one greater than Cyrus that God began speaking of in chapter 42, the servant who is also the arm of the Lord we discovered. Well, we did that. We looked at the content. We looked at the substance. We didn't look at the structure so much. Again, look at the first three on your own. Chapter 42, verses 1 through 9, 49, 1 through 13, chapter 50, 4 through 9. But, but this, each of these poems is very carefully organized. And, and, and we'll look at that especially in the one before us tonight. It's very intric intricately, isn't the word, right word, carefully structured. Which shouldn't surprise us, God is a God of order, right? So, so what we have before us are five stanzas. The technical term, if you want to be technical, is strophes or triplets, because each of them has three verses. Um, and the first verse of each is really the theme of each stanza or strophe, uh, strophe sort, of, sort of like a, a topic sentence of a paragraph. So if we start in 52 verse 13 again, <laughs> behold my servant, same topic as, as, as the other four, 
What about the servant? He shall deal prudently. Better translation, successfully. He will be successful. Why is that important? Because we're familiar now with where Isaiah is going. He's going to be successful despite all appearances. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Exalted, he will be lifted. I'm sorry, exalted, he will, he will rise. Extolled, he will be lifted up. He will be very high. He will be highly placed. These aren't just Isaiah finding three words to say the same thing. He will be exalted. He will rise. He will rise again. That speaks of the resurrection. He will be extolled. He will be lifted up. That speaks of the ascension. He will be very high, placed highly. That speaks of Christ's present ministry of intercession. One commentator says, really, in this section, God begins at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. He wants the first thing that we read here to underscore the fact that Jesus' ministry was successful, that what happened after the cross confirms that. It's really much the same as what Paul says in Philippians. Philippians 2, verse 8. I'm just going to read two verses. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Therefore God has also exalted him and given given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and every tongue shall confess." Isaiah, Paul goes in the opposite order. Paul, Isaiah starts with what happens after the cross, and he's going to work backwards. Paul starts with the cross and works forwards, but they both say the same thing. That Jesus is degraded and then exalted. Verse 14, we read about Jesus being degraded. We, we go from exaltation, verse 13, to degradation. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of men. Before Jesus was lifted up, he was brought low, in other words, so low, he was scarcely recognizable as human after the scourging, after the other torture that he was subjected to. But then verse 15 So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. So we go from verse 13, the close of Jesus' earthly ministry and the beginning of of his present ministry of intercession. We go backwards, verse 14, to the cross, to the crucifixion, verse 15. Then we go forward to the second coming. And we read verse 15, as shocked as people were when they saw a shell of a human being, when they saw the wreckage that used to be Jesus beaten and pulverized hanging on the cross, they will be just as shocked when they see him return. The word sprinkle there, it's, it's an awkward translation. The idea is, is they will leap inwardly. They'll jump up within themselves. But I, I think that the Holy Spirit chose that word to, 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 to bring forth an interesting parallelism. It doesn't jump off the page, but the word sprinkle, if you do a word search, shows up in Leviticus to describe a purification ceremony. 
sprinkling with blood. The word marred, if you go back to verse 14, that word marred shows up also in Leviticus to describe ritual corruption. So there's some interesting parallelism going on there beneath the surface because there's nothing accidental in God's word. So that's the first stanza, the first triplet. Jesus, since the cross, from the cross to, to our day, verse 13. Jesus on the cross, verse 14. Jesus, when he returns, verse 15. Shocking the kings of the earth as they realize who he is, who he was. When they realized, wait, the suffering servant was also the conquering king. They're one and the same. I remember hearing someone in our fellowship describe the day that she realized that the baby in the manger was also the figure hanging on the cross. She said it was a long time, even growing up in the church, before she made that connection, that the baby in the manger was also the Jesus hanging on the cross. How much a greater jump will it be for Israel realizing that the one that they crucified is the one returning to deliver them? Chapter 53, verse 1, next stanza. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We recognize, we talked about last week, that this is the beginning of a nine-verse prayer. It's the cry of the believing remnant of Israel, the repentant remnant at the end of the tribulation. Who, who believes? Who, whose eyes have been opened to see the suffering servant? Who, who get, do you get it? Do you see it? Do you see it? the biggest objection, if you talk to Jews today, the biggest objection they have, why, why, why don't you believe that Jesus was the Messiah? He didn't fulfill prophecy. There was prophecy he didn't fulfill. He didn't usher in the kingdom. And besides that, he died. How could a Messiah suffer and die? John chapter 12. Go ahead and flip there if you don't mind. Keep a finger in Isaiah. Obviously, we're coming back. Israel today can't see past that. They've been blinded in large part, Paul says. John 12, if you look at the beginning of the chapter, it's six days before Passover. Jesus coming to Bethany. Scroll down. <clears throat> There's the triumphal entry in verse 12. Scroll down still further, verse 35. Actually, verse 34. The people said, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So they're already talking about their presuppositions about the Messiah Jesus said to them, verse 35, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you might become sons of the light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
They could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, and lest they should understand with their hearts and turn that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So that's the other reason that I think we can point at the days before the crucifixion, the days when he experienced the finality of that rejection, that blindness overtook Israel, that the fulfillment of Isaiah's words um, took place. But if we project ourselves forward in time, if we follow Isaiah prophetically into the future, we read the cry of the remnant, oh, now, we get it now. We see it now. Do you see? Do you see he was the Messiah all along? Jesus was the Messiah all along. Back to Isaiah 53, verse 2. <clears throat> For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. That's a picture of what we would call a sucker. Little, little, little vine, little branch, little growth coming off the side of a tree, coming, coming maybe up next to a tree at the base of the tree, sucking the, the nutrients from the, from the tree, from the plant proper. You see them in your yard, see them in the forest, you see them in your garden. What do you do when you see them, if, 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 if it's in your yard or your garden? You rip them off, you throw them away, because, because you, you view them as a, as a parasite. And that's what Israel did tore Jesus off, threw him away. They should have been ready for Jesus to show up exactly that way. Why? Isaiah 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch, or a shoot, shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of God will rest upon him, and so forth. Clearly a messianic passage. Clearly a prophecy that the house of David would be cut down and a sucker or a shoot would grow up out of the trunk. Not beautiful, not glorious, but alive. And Jesus was. Until he wasn't. Verse 3. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Rejected of men, the Hebrew is Isham. Rejected of men of stature. Rejected by leaders. He knew sorrow and grief, which was undeniably true. You can also translate that phrase, pain and sickness. Because so much of his ministry was to the sick and to the sorrowful. Put it all together, he understood humanity. No doubt you've heard about the ad campaign going on, one of which aired during the Super Bowl, the He Gets Us campaign. I'm going to talk about that a little bit on Sunday. Regardless of what you think about the ad campaign, Jesus did get us, does get us. He understands humanity. Humanity didn't understand him. Not everyone, at least. Many hid. Many despised him. Specifically, Israel did not esteem him. When the rabbis refer to Jesus, they often refer to him as Yeshu, which for a long time I thought was just a truncated version, a shortened version of Yeshua, which would be Jesus. Turns out, Yeshu is actually an acronym. 
for may his name and memory be blotted out. Close enough to Yeshua that if you're not if you're not in on the on the lingo, if you if you if you're not in on the on the on the inside language, it can go right over you and over me for years. But that's what it means. May his name and memory be blotted out. Another name the rabbis have for Jesus is Ha Talui, the hanged one, or other names that insult Jesus' mother. They do not esteem him. Third triplet. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we said last week when we read this, we tend to, we tend to apply this to ourselves. We read this on Good Friday or whenever we read it, and we say, oh, that's, that's Jesus paying the price for our sin. That's not a bad application. That's obviously a very apt application. But the interpretation has this as part of the future confession of spiritual Israel, believing Israel, repent, the repentant remnant. Jesus bore our sins, took our sins. They're acknowledging that Jesus' suffering was a sacrifice for them personally. He took their place. Their sin was placed on him. To the Jew, they would think about the sin being placed on the, 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 excuse me, the ox um, on Yom Kippur or on the scapegoat. He took their sins upon him. We esteemed him stricken, smitten, afflicted, plagued, like, like one is plagued with leprosy. It's the same verb. Why? For his own sin, or so they thought. We thought he deserved it. We thought God was punishing him for what he did. Another term the rabbis use is haposhya, the sinner. We thought he deserved it, but verse 5, now we see we deserved it. He was wounded for our transgressions. Better translation? Pierced. He was bruised for our iniquities. Crushed. Like the crushing feeling that you have when you're suffocated. And we know, of course, that on the cross, that, that's what Jesus was experiencing, was slow suffocation. Punished for our peace, for our shalom. As much punishment as was required by God's justice for Israel to be at peace with God was as much punishment as Jesus received, is what Israel will say, is what they were conf will confess. By his stripes, by his scourging, we were healed, made whole. He received the punishment that we deserved. Peter echoes this. 1 Peter chapter 2 Peter, writing to believing Jews, invokes this. He says, To this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, 
leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, when he suffered, did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul." Peter says that to the Jews in his day that were saved retail, as it were. One here, one there, a few there, a few there. But prophetically, the fulfillment of that is at the end of the tribulation when that believing remnant is saved wholesale. As Paul says, when all of Israel, not all physical Israel, not all those of Jewish descent, but all of believing Israel is saved wholesale. Fourth stanza. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. All four Gospels testify to that, right? That Jesus didn't defend himself. I've heard a lot of sermons making too much out of that. Jesus didn't defend himself. You should never defend yourself, Christian. Not, not ever, not anyway. I don't know that that's absolutely true for all situations. Why didn't Jesus defend himself? Because he'd already said all that there was to say. He'd already presented himself as the Messiah by every proof required by the law and then some. So Jesus was, was refusing to degrade himself knowing that they'd already made up his mind. Or that they'd already made up their mind, rather. Verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he is cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had none no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. The, the phrase about prison troubles some people, because you can scour the Gospels and not find any reference of Jesus, Jesus being imprisoned. Some commentators say, well, was that imprisoned in the ground? Was that the three days that he was dead? I don't think so. It doesn't fit with what Isaiah is saying. I think that, that more likely the inference is that Jesus was held somewhere between his religious trials and his civil trial. And indeed, if, if, you, if, you, if you examine the Gospels carefully and, and try to construct a timeline, there are some hours unaccounted for. When we were in Israel six, seven years ago um, in Jerusalem, there's a house that they believe to be the house of the high priest in Jesus' day. And underneath it is a dungeon of sorts. There's a deep pit. And we, we stood in that pit and we read Psalm 88, which is very messianic in flavor and speaks of being lowered into a deep pit. Is it the pit of death or was it a literal pit or was it perhaps both? I'll let you dig into that on your own. Still, uh, verse, verse 8. Who will declare his generations? The people who saw Jesus executed didn't talk much about it afterwards. They went on with their lives. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. In the Hebrew, it, it says cut off. And we see that, that verb, that phrase appear other places. And that's a phrase that refers specifically he was executed for a violation of Jewish law, of Levitical law. So get this. The one who fulfilled the law was 
was cut off in observance of the law because he had assumed, he had taken Israel's sin upon himself. And that's what Isaiah alludes to. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Isaiah is talking. Who are his people? The Jews. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. That would confuse someone in Isaiah's day. It would confuse someone in Jesus' day. Because he died as a criminal. Under Jewish law, a criminal could not be buried with his family. There was a special place where criminals were buried. That was part of the punishment. You don't get to be uh, interred with the rest of your clan, with the rest of your tribe. That was part of the punishment. All four Gospels reveal that Jesus was laid in the grave of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. Was that a violation of Jewish law? No, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He had not sinned himself. Sins were placed upon him, but he himself had committed no sin. He was eligible to be buried with the rich. He didn't need to be placed in a criminal's grave. Even in death, Jesus fulfilling the law perfectly. Finally, we've got strophe five. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief. What happened was horrific, But when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What happened to Jesus was horrific, but God was always in control. This was always God's plan. This was a plan that Father, Son, and Spirit formulated together, agreed upon together, before together they laid the foundation of the world. God's plan was always to sicken Jesus, to weaken Jesus, to make him, verse 10, a sin offering. When you make a soul an offering for sin, I don't want to get side-railed and get super technical, but you know every feast, every sacrifice is prophetic, right? Every feast, every sacrifice speaks of Jesus. by, by, By invoking the sin offering, the trespass offering here, What Isaiah is saying is that Jesus died for all sins, known and unknown, intentional and unintentional. Remember on the Day of Atonement, there were those two categories. There were the offerings made for the sins that people could remember and think of, and then there was the offering for, God, things that I didn't notice or or think of or, or things that I don't remember. Jesus' offering, becoming a trespass offering, that was comprehensive. He died once for all. But after God's plan came to fruition, after Jesus was that trespass offering, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. How does that work? The trespass offering was killed. We just read about where he was buried. This was prophetic of the resurrection. That's the only way that happens. When the one who is the trespass offering when the one who is buried is risen from the dead, which brings us back to where we started. Jesus' death was not a failure. His death was a victory. His death was a triumph. And as a result, verse 11, he'll see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Satisfied as in a debt being satisfied. Satisfied as in paid in full. Satisfied as in tetelestai. Satisfied as in you and I can be justified. And on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The Catholics, when, 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 when Catholics who sing modern songs bring, bring that song into their hymnals, they have to change that line because they don't believe that the wrath of God was satisfied on the cross. And they get into quibbles with the people who wrote it and so forth. But, but Isaiah just told us that it was true. On the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for anyone who calls on his name. By his, by his knowledge, by the knowledge of him, better translation, by the knowledge of him, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. Who are the great and the strong? People can argue about it. I think the greater us. I think the great is the church. I think the strong are the tribulation saints. Because where do we end up? Because he poured out, uh, he shall divide the spoil with the strong, divide a portion with the great. I think that refers to you and I sharing in Christ's inheritance, ruling and reigning with him in the kingdom. Because he poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors, he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors and still does. We ended up where we started. He was brought low only to be lifted high. Fourth servant song. 42, 49, 50, and now 53. Chapter 42, we learned that the servant would serve both Jew and Gentile, which Paul just talked about last weekend in chapter 9. Chapter 49, we learned that the servant would be rejected. Chapter 50, we learned that he would be persecuted, that he would suffer physical abuse. We did not know why until now. Now we know. Chapter 52 spoke of redemption. Remember verse 3? It spoke of Israel's redemption without money. We didn't know what the cost would be. Okay, it's not money. How will they be redeemed? Now we know the price paid. Matthew 23.38, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You won't see me again until you say that. What, what does that mean? What will that be like? What will you say? What form will that take? Now we know. We just read it. What's the key element? You may have heard about what appears to be a revival happening at Asbury College in Kentucky. Asbury College co-located with Southeastern Baptist Seminary. Um, I'm going to talk about that Sunday as well, I think. I, I, I think the Lord is, um, is directing me to, to, to chat a little bit about that. You know, time is the measure of revival. Fruit is the measure of revival. And, and there are those who are cynical, and there are those who are perhaps overly exuberant at, at what we hear is happening. I suspect it may very well be genuine. And the reason why, 
Pastor Chuck, when he was alive, would, would always exhort us, if we wanted to learn about revival, and every Christian should, he would exhort us to read J. Edwin Orr, probably the greatest 20th century authority on revival. And one of the things that Orr labored to point out is that revival, genuine revival, in Scripture and in history, is always marked by repentance. We think that, you know, the Jesus Revolution film is coming out next week. We're trying to reserve a theater so we can go see it as a church, people who, who want to at least. It talks about the early days of Calvary um, and, and Pastor Chuck's, uh, the softening of Pastor Chuck's heart for the hippies and, and the way that God used um, Chuck and Calvary in that revival, in that third or fourth great awakening, depending upon how you count. And, and, and when we look back and we look at the pictures in Life magazine and the cover of Time magazine, and, and, and I'm sure what, what the movie is going to emphasize is the joy and the peace and the relief and the release. And, and that's, that's, that's characteristic of revival, to be sure. In his presence is fullness of joy. But what J. Edwin Orr points out, and, and, and don't take my word for it, be Berean, search the scriptures, prove whether this isn't so. What precedes the joy in revival are tears, is repentance. Josiah. Think about, think about Josiah, arguably the greatest revival of the Old Testament. When they discovered the word... And they read the book of the law and they said, oh, good grief, have we been getting this wrong? What was their immediate reaction? Tearing their clothes, sackcloth and ashes, weeping. I got saved in 94. Um, something else that happened in 94 was, was, was the, the birth of the Toronto Blessing, if you've heard of that. It began in a, in a vineyard church at the Toronto airport, and it very quickly got weird enough that Vineyard said, yeah, we don't want to be associated with you. Vineyard split off from Calvary um, because, because there, were, there were some people in Calvary that, that wanted to pursue a more charismatic, more Pentecostal avenue. Um, and they said, yeah, this is, this, is, this is too out there even for Vineyard. Um, because this was the holy laughter movement. This was the, the barking and, and, and growling and making animal noises as worship movement. And I remember one of the very first church services I ever went to as a born-again Christian, the pastor was talking about that's a counterfeit revival and you need to run away from it. And the way that you know that it's counterfeit is they're jumping right to ecstasy. They're going right to ecstatic expression and they're skipping repentance. They're going right to the joy or, or, or the counterfeit joy, the manufactured joy, the I really want to be joyful, everyone around me is joyful, so I'm going to... But without the repentance. When Josiah discovered, or when the, the law was discovered and brought to Josiah, the first response was repentance. When Jesus came... The forerunner, John the Baptist, who came in the spirit of Elijah, preached what? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Before Jesus returns, what do we see? Israel repents. 2 Chronicles 7.14, a verse many of you know. If my people, who are called by my name, 
will do four things, God says he'll do three. If my people who, will call, who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin, heal their land. What we're reading about, Jesus returning to set up his kingdom is the ultimate, is the long term, the complete fulfillment of that prophecy. Lots of Americans want to grab that prophecy and claim it for the U.S. Can we? Maybe. Maybe as an application. It's not the interpretation. The America is not, is, is not in Scripture. Can we, can we appeal to God on the basis of his unchanging character? Perhaps. But we can't, we can't compel revival. God is sovereign. And, and revival is a sovereign work of God the Holy Spirit. We, all of which to say, we can humble ourselves, pray, seek his face, turn from our wicked ways. That still can't, we, we can't compel God to do anything. He's not a trained seal. But if we humble ourselves, pray, seek our face, turn from our sin, will God bless us? Will he, in his mercy, grant us a revival? Maybe, but here's what I know. Here's what I know isn't a maybe. Without humility, without repentance, there will be no revival. Because you never see it in Scripture. No revival of a nation. No revival of a college campus. The, the message that was preached that kicked this off at Asbury was a message of repentance. Now that's not shocking because they're, 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 they're a church in the Wesleyan tradition. So, so repentance is a common theme. But still, the message was one of repentance. And apparently, I heard this morning that, that there are similar things breaking out on, on other Christian college campuses. Are they copycat? I don't know. The fruit will tell. But what I know is, is, is what we see pictured here is a beautiful and horrible cry of repentance by Israel. And if we want revival in our nation, if we want revival in our fellowship, if you want revival in your own life, Gypsy Smith, the, the, the 19th century evangelist, part of the early Salvation Army, friends with G. Campbell Morgan and, 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 and Harry Ironsides, Gypsy Smith said, if you want to see revival in your life, draw a chalk circle on the floor around yourself and pray that God would bring revival to everyone in the circle. But if you pray that prayer, and, 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 if, and if you seek that revival, be prepared to begin the way that Israel began with repentance. Father, we, we're grateful for the joy of repentance, for the gift of repentance, for the privilege. We get to repent. I think so often of the angels that fell that had no such opportunity. We argue about the song, you didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. Want is the right word. You chose. You, you decided. 
You were not compelled. People say, oh, God, God in his character was compelled to send Jesus. You were not. You chose to because of your love. For the glory of your name. We get this privilege that to our knowledge no one else has ever had. We get it because Israel rejected it. And so we have the we get to be in line first. Oh Father, teach us to value, to treasure, to run to repentance, to rejoice in it, to take advantage of it, to glorify you in it. In your name, amen.